Do we run after the true and living God as hard as the world runs after their false gods? Hello. Thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. This is a special message taught in the summer of 2019. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, Shoreliners, let's grab a seat. My introverted friends have already grabbed your seats, so good to see you guys. All right, let's grab a seat. For those of us who are new to Shoreline, uh, we just want to say welcome. What we just did is very, uh, very um, random. We don't do that every Sunday. We call that our intermission or fellowship intermission. And we like to just take the time to uh, get to know some new faces and eat donuts. So, hey, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we will get a Bible to you. If you have your Bibles, let's get them out and get them ready. If you are on the Bible app, you can uh, jump on that right now. My name is uh, Pilgrim Benham, one of the pastors here. And uh, actually, uh, Jen and I, our family goes on vacation starting today. So we're excited about that. Um, thank you for uh, everyone who prayed for me this last week. Uh, I was able to be in California at the Calvary Chapel International Conference and speak at one of the sessions there, and it was awesome. So thank you guys so much for your prayers. I heard it was like 104 here with the heat index, a little bit hot, uh, but uh, I was not jealous because it was 68 and breezy out in California. <laughs> so sorry about that. Um, today, uh, and next week, we get to hear from uh, two of my favorite pastors. Next week, as you guys know, Pastor Carl Dixon from Sarasota, who is my pastor, is going to be coming and bringing the word. So I'm excited about that. And today, uh, one of my best friends uh, from Reach Jacks, which is a Calvary Chapel in Jacksonville, Florida, is pastored by Pastor Eric Souza. Uh, he's a great Bible expositor. He's a, a great father uh, and husband. And uh, I'm just super excited to have him open the word and share with us today. So let's give him a big shoreline welcome, Pastor Eric Souza. Thanks, brother. All right. Best introduction ever. Um, open up your Bibles with me to Psalm 16. And we will cover half of this psalm. Um, it is such a privilege to be here with you guys. Um, Calvary Shoreline is uh, almost a second home for me now. Um, love, as uh, Pilgrim said, we're great friends. Uh, I love your pastor. Um, in fact, I love all of your pastors that are here. I love the leadership here. Just love what God is doing. It's a, it's a wonderful privilege to be here in front of all of you guys this morning. Um, all right. Well, um, he said all you need to know about me, <laughs> so let's just pray, and uh, we'll get into our Bible study. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we get to spend in your word. We thank you for this church. We thank you, Lord, that you have preserved your word for this church. And we ask now, Lord, as we turn our hearts and our attention to you, that you would speak to each and every one of us. Lord, we want to give you uh, this time that we have to sit here and study your word as an offering to you. And uh, Lord, we ask, as always, that your word would not return void. Lord, if there's anybody in here who needs incredible encouragement, 
They've, they've been in a very dark place recently. I pray that your word would bring them incredible encouragement. For those, Lord, who feel lost and need guidance, I pray that your word would, would be the light to their feet and the lamp to their path. For those, Lord, who are living in a way that they know they ought not live, we pray that your word would bring rebuke and that all of us would have faith to listen to whatever it is that you have to say to us. We ask, as always, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would illuminate this text to us, and that you would apply it directly to our lives. We love you so much. We thank you for this time, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Psalm 16, if you're taking notes, you can jot down the title. It is Big God, Little Gods. Or if you'd like, you can call it True God, False Gods. But we're going to see what David does in this psalm is he sets up who the real God is, the true God. And then in the end, he contrasts the real God with the false gods of the world. Uh, We're going to be focusing most of our time on the real God because that's exactly what we ought to do in life, focus most of our time on the real God. Well, let's begin. He starts in verse 1, Psalm 16. Again, this is a psalm of David. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said, note this, to the Lord. You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Starting in verse 1 there, he starts off by saying, preserve me. That's literally, keep me, guard me. Or if you'd like, David is acknowledging that he needs to be saved because it's meaning save me. David is looking outside of himself. I think that's key. He's looking outside of himself. He's looking to God. He's asking God to preserve him, to keep him, and to save him. He doesn't look inward and say, I can save myself. I'm, I'm in a whole world of hurt right now, and I know all I got to do is pick myself up by my bootstraps and go on. He doesn't look to his friends. He doesn't look to his family, first and foremost. He doesn't look to a job. He looks to God, and he asks him to save him. We note here in verse 1, he says, Preserve me, O God. This is the first of three ways in the first two verses that David refers to God. So if you're taking notes, we're going to look at three different names or titles that David gives to God. First is right here in verse 1 when he says, O God. Now this term God in the Hebrew is uh, the, the simple word El. We know a, a way people refer to God in Hebrew is Elohim, which would be the, the plural of El. And it's not plural as in polytheism, it's plural in majesty. That, that God is so big and so great. Here, David just uses the singular form. And it's a general term meaning God, but it also means strength and power. And we know that David knew exactly who to pray to. When David was weak, he prayed to strength. When when David felt powerless, he prayed to the one who is the personification of power. Again, he knew where to direct his prayer to. He knew that God is all-powerful. Now, I don't know about you, but I find great encouragement when I think of the fact that God is all-powerful. What it does for me while I'm praying to him is it makes my problems so much smaller. I look at my problems and I go, I I can't conquer this. I, I can't beat this. I can't figure out how to get past this problem. And then I think of how big God is. You read in the word that he holds the universe in the span of his hand. 
That, that means from his thumb to his pinky. It means he palms the universe. Any, any you know, basketball fans here, right? Like, it, you watch um, uh, Kawhi Leonard, they pass the ball across court, and he catches it with one hand, he's just like holding out. I'm like, that's what God does with the universe. Like, incredible. And, and here I am making this huge deal with my little problem, and God is palming the universe. When, when I think of how big he is, how great he is, it makes my problems shrink. David does the same thing, and so he says to God there in verse 1, in you, talking to L, in you I put my trust. Literally, in you I seek refuge, or if you like, I flee to you for protection. When I think of fleeing for protection, um, now that I live in Florida, I'm from Arizona, and so uh, I remember the first uh, eight days we moved to Florida, seven years ago, it rained eight straight days. The last 365 days in Arizona, it had rained eight days. I mean, just completely different. Both are miserably hot. One has water, one doesn't, right? And so people are telling me, oh, well, hurricanes, you know, that, that's a thing here. And I was like, no, it's not. <laughs> hurricanes are on TV. <laughs> Silly, right? Um, and then I realized very quickly, oh, no, hurricanes are a thing. And they're like, yeah, there's a city evacuation. I was like, no, that's, that's also just on TV. Like, <laughs> cities don't evacuate. No, yes, they do. When I, I saw the first hurricane coming our way, and all these people who had lived in Jacksonville for years and years and years, I'm like, what are you guys doing for the hurricane? They're like, we're leaving the city. I'm like, what is going on? Like, Armageddon now. I mean, just freaked me out. But the reason they left is they were fleeing for protection. They were going somewhere, at least where they didn't think the hurricane was going. One of our friends went somewhere. The hurricane turned right to them. I was like, suckers. But anyways... <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know how all this stuff works, but I'm staying right here. Um, but many people, they flee for protection, right? They, they evacuate the city. Well, in our lives, many times when things get difficult, we also flee to places for protection. So I want to challenge you. I want to ask you, where do you flee for protection in your life? When, when, when life uh, hits you hard, when things aren't going good, when something turns for the worse, where do you go? Now, if you're taking notes, uh, you can jot down three places. Um, I'm not like Pilgrim. I'm not smart. Um, Pilgrim said, for fun, what I do is I read books. And I was like, wow, I did that for homework. <laughs> That's what he does for fun. So three places to flee to when times get tough. Again, this is not very deep. The first place many people, in my 14 years of full-time ministry, I've seen people flee to these three places. The first place is a bad place. You like that? I could write a book, a Dr. Seuss book, right? They flee to bad places. Many people. Life turns. Things aren't going good. And so what do they do? They, they look back to a thing that they thought has brought them comfort in the past. They turn to their sin. They turn to their vice. The alcoholic turns back to the bottle. The, the, the drug addict turns back to the needle. The, the guy who's addicted to porn turns back to the screen. Whatever it would be, things aren't going the way that they wanted it to go. And so they turn to a bad place. They turn to the thing that they thought would bring them freedom or at least bring them a little bit of um, reprieve from their current situation. Instead, they're turning to the prison of their own making. But I think probably more common than that is people don't turn to a bad place within the church. They turn to, you ready? Number two, we're going even deeper, a better place. See, it, it starts with a B, though, so that's good. 
a bad place, and then they turn to a better place. Many Christians do this. They, they, they turn to their friends. They turn to their family first and foremost. Listen, guys, if our faith is in our friends, if our faith is in our family, if our faith is even in something good, but it is not in God, our faith is ill-placed. Hopefully, we have friends who direct us to God. Well, then thirdly and finally, if it's not a bad place or the better place, people turn to the best place, right? They, they, they turn to the Lord himself. And that's where I would encourage all of us as believers. When, when life hits you hard, go to the Lord. Well, it, it makes me think of the story, the, the very famous story in the New Testament where, you guys remember this, the, the disciples are rowing. Jesus is, is getting alone to pray. If Jesus got alone to pray, you and I have no excuse. Like, we need to get alone to pray. But he gets alone to pray. He sends the disciples out on the water, and these guys are rowing. And Matthew 14 tells us that the waves are tossing the boat. I love that description. I imagine like a wave throws the boat and catches the boat on this side. The waves were contrary. These guys are rowing for some six hours. Now, now get into that boat with these guys. There they are. It's pitch black. It's in the middle of the night. They look out in the distance and they see this, this white figure. Can you imagine? You're exhausted. It's 3 a.m. You've been rowing for six hours. You're, you're terrified. And it's pitch black. The sky is illuminated because of a lightning strike, and you see this tiny little figure out in the distance. What's going in your mind? You're like, I'm seeing things. That looked like a guy walking on water, right? You can imagine what these guys are thinking. They're, they're rowing. They're like, that looked like a ghost. It can't be a ghost. There's no such thing as ghosts. The next lightning strike, that thing that's out in the distance is now closer, and you're like, okay, now I'm terrified, right? The next lightning strike is right next to you. And the Bible says um, in, in Matthew 14 that when they saw Jesus, they were troubled. Like sometimes I think that the Bible doesn't give the best description, right? These guys weren't troubled. They were outside of their minds, terrified, right? And Jesus shows up, and I love Jesus' perspective. He goes, hey, don't be afraid. It's me. I love that. What brought them great terror, what, what caused them to freak out and think something illogical, Jesus looked at, and he wasn't afraid at all. Jesus brought them peace in the midst of their storm. And Peter, bold, stupid Peter, right? What does he say to what he thought was the ghost? He goes, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come out of the boat. And I always thought that was so funny. What if it was a ghost with a sense of humor, right? Sure, come on out of the boat, right? Anybody else want to come, right? Like, but Peter says, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come out. And there's Peter getting out of that boat. Understand that that was a very, very difficult task for Peter to do, to get out of that boat. As, as the storm is going like crazy, Peter is getting out of this boat. And what did the scene look like? He puts his foot on the water, and he, and he feels that he's buoyant. He feels that he can walk on the water. He turns, and he sees his Lord and Savior, the creator of the universe. As his eyes are fixed on Christ... Peter is doing what no other man has ever done. He's walking on the tumultuous water. When we think of it in our mind, I think sometimes we imagine the water as still and placid. No, it was going crazy. And Peter is walking on this water as he's looking at Christ. But what happens? The same thing that happens to so many of us. As his eyes are fixed on Christ, he's doing the miraculous. But listen, as soon as he begins to feel... As soon as he feels the wind hitting his face, as soon as he feels the waves crashing over him, the reality of his situation begins to sink in. Pun intended. Sink in? Yeah? Okay. He's looking at Christ. 
He feels the waves, he feels the water, and he begins to sink. He takes his eyes off of the creator. He looks at creation because, listen, of how he feels. How many of us do this? We allow our feelings to dictate our faith, right? As Peter feels the wind, as he feels the waves, it causes him to look elsewhere. It causes him to look at the situation incorrectly. He was looking at it exactly as he should, but as soon as he allowed the feelings to take over his mind, Peter began to sink. How many of us do that? Uh, Pastor Ed Taylor out in Calvary Aurora has a, has a phrase that's great. He says, feelings are real. The, the way you feel, that's real. But feelings lie. I love that. They, they don't tell you the truth. You feel one way. It's a real way that you're feeling, but it's not the actual reality. That was Peter. The reality was that he was looking at the creator of the universe, and he could walk on water. He could fly if the creator of the universe wanted him to. But instead, he begins to feel, and he begins to think, sink. Praise God that Peter knew exactly what to do in that moment. As Peter began to sink, he said three of the most powerful words ever recorded in Scripture. Lord, save me. That's it. Not eloquent, not, not lengthy. Lord, save me. In this prayer, Peter knew where to direct his prayer to, like David in the psalm. But think of it. Peter could have looked elsewhere. Peter could have looked within. He could have said, you know what? I'm sinking and I'm a fisherman. I know how to tread water, baby. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get myself back to that boat. He could have looked back to his friends. Again, so many of us do this, don't we? Looks back to his friends and said, throw me a life preserver. Save me. He could have, I think very commonly, looked back at the thing that had kept him floating before. He could have looked back to the boat, the thing that had kept him above water previously, and he could have said, that is the thing that will save me. How many of us do this? Before Christ, we look at the thing that we thought was keeping us afloat, and we didn't realize it was our own prison, the thing that we were straining in, the thing that we were struggling in, the thing that we needed Jesus to deliver us from. That's the thing that we turn and we look to. Peter, fortunately, kept his eyes fixed on Christ, and Jesus immediately answered his prayer. Isn't it great? Jesus doesn't say, oh, Peter, if you, if you would have just prayed more eloquently, if you would have just prayed longer, then I would have saved you. Jesus reached out and immediately saved him because Peter knew exactly where to direct his prayer to. David is exactly the same. He directs his prayer to the proper place. He says in verse 2, Oh, my soul, you have said. This is the depth of of who David is. It's not his mouth speaking, it's his soul speaking. Now, to whom is he speaking? Look at, he says in verse 2, to the, if you have the New King James, it'll be all caps here, to the Lord. If you're taking notes, this is the second uh, title or term that David has used to describe God Almighty. This is the Tetragrammaton. It's the name of God. Um, it's Yahweh or Jehovah. Now, the meaning of Yahweh or Jehovah is all existing one. So David's finite soul is reaching out to, it's crying out to the infinite and eternal. Understand that that is exactly what prayer is. I think sometimes we view prayer as a duty, as a thing that we have to do, right? You wake up in the morning, well, I guess I have to pray now. 
before you go to bed, I'm supposed to pray. How about before meals, right? We have to pray before meals because we're Americans. I, I went to Africa. They prayed after the meal, and I thought, that's more appropriate, right? Thank God we're all still alive. I mean, th- thank God that food was tasty, whatever it be, right? But, but we feel this duty to pray. Understand that prayer is an incredible privilege. And if we view prayer as a privilege, that our finite soul can reach out and connect to the infinite, prayer is going to happen a whole lot more common in our life if we view it as the privilege that it actually is. Now notice, what does the core of his finite being say to the infinite and all-existing one? He says to the Lord, notice this, this is the last way he describes him, you are my Lord. You'll notice it's not all in caps because it's a different term in, the, in Hebrew. In Hebrew, this is the term Adonai. Adonai. Now, this is in the plural form. It means Lord, ruler, or governor. Since it's in the plural form, David's saying, you are the Lord of lords. You are the governor of governor. He's also saying, you are Lord over every aspect of my life. So in this prayer, David is acknowledging, number one, who God is. He says, you're my Lord. You're my Adonai. You're my decision maker. You're my governor. In other words, what David is saying is he's saying, Lord, there is nothing in my life that's off limits to you. Nothing. I want to ask you, is there any areas of your life that you view as off limits to God? You go, Lord, I'll I'll, I'll give you most of my life, but these small things you can't have. Perhaps for you, it's an area of sin. Lord, I'll give you all of my time on Sunday. I'll give you most of my time on Monday. I'll go to the community groups when, you know, summer's done. I'll do all the things that you want me to do church-wise, but this one area of my life, this certain pet secret sin, this one I'm keeping into myself. You are Lord of most of my life, but not this. Don't fall for it. That's a lie of the enemy, this, this secret sin. There's no sin that's secret. Well, we might think it's secret, We're holding it from somebody else, but there's no sin that's secret. The the judge of the universe is the one who knows. Besides that, James tells us the truth about that secret sin. In the end, it will produce death in our life. But many, we like to keep the back door open for the robber. We like to keep the back door open to Satan in our life, and we say, I'm going to keep access to this sin. Maybe for you, though, you're here at church, you're a good Christian. Maybe for you, it's not a secret sin in your life. Perhaps for you, it's a liberty It's a liberty that God has asked you to give up. And you look around and you go, well, all my friends, they exercise this liberty. I'm not going to give it up. But God has asked you specifically to give up. You go, Lord, you're the Lord of everything else but not that. Maybe for you it's not a sin or liberty, but maybe for you it's a step of faith. God has told you to go. Or like Peter in the boat, God has told you to come. And you go, Lord, I I can't. I can't. I'll, I'll give you every other category of my life but not the step of faith. If he is our Lord, if he is our Adonai, Lord and governor over every aspect of our life, we'll say, Lord, whatever you say, wherever you are is where I want to be, and I will obey. Notice how David concludes in verse 2. It's great. He says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Literally, he's saying, I have no good above and beyond you. His soul has already acknowledged who God is. He's Adonai. He's Lord of his life. Now his soul acknowledges what everything else is. Essentially, what David is saying here is there is no good in my life apart from you. 
God is the blessing as well as the one who gives blessings. David's saying that blessings are good, but without God, blessings aren't even blessings. God, he's saying, is the best thing and nothing compares to him. All right, we go on. Verse 3. I love this for, for the church. It says, As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The literal word for delight is pleasure. So maybe perhaps we should adopt the Chick-fil-A rule here at church, right? When you see, it's my pleasure to see you. Nope, never mind. That's weird. Let's not do that. Nix that idea, right? But when you come to church, is it, is it delightful for you to come to church? When, when you know that you're going to see the other people at church, you think, oh, I can't wait to go to church. I can't wait to be delighted by them. Or instead, for you, is greeting time the worst? You show up this Sunday and you go, oh, gosh, it's intermission Sunday. I don't know what to do, right? And they're like, all right, go and greet those around you. are like, I have leprosy. <laughs> Just stay away from me, unclean, right? Like, I, I hate this. I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to get to know people. Is that you? David here says, the, the saints are my delight. Listen to this quote from Boyce in his commentary. He says, do you love other Christians? Do you find it good and rewarding to be with them? Do you seek their company? This is a simple test. Those who love the Lord, listen to this uh, conclusion, those who love the Lord will love the company of those who also love him. Church should be refreshing. Church should be wonderful for so many reasons, but definitely because of fellowship within the church. I, I love when, when I talk to those who, who have committed to reach. That's the name of, of our church in Jacksonville. Those who have committed uh, to come to our church when, when we ask them, so like, what made you commit to come to the church? Um, you know, pridefully, I was hoping that they would say, oh, you're teachings, but no one's ever said that. I don't know why. Um, but, you know, it, you'd think maybe they would say, worship, that, that's what it was. The teaching, that's what it is. But more than not, people say, oh, it's, it's the people. They're, they're so warm. They're so inviting. They're, they're, they're so welcoming. We had to come back. That is exactly what church should look like, this inviting, warm, welcoming thing, a thing that is a delight to go to. If we can't delight ourselves while at church, then there is no hope for this world. All right, we go on. Uh, verse 4, we now find the false gods, the little gods. He says, their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. Notice David's stance. He's saying, I will not do, I refuse to do what the world does. But notice his observation starting in the beginning of verse 4. Their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. This term sorrow can be translated as pain, can be translated as injury, hurt, or wound. David is saying pain and hurt will pile up if you chase after, if you hasten after another God. One of the things I love about the Bible is that the Bible is like a good doctor. The Bible is brutally honest with you. If you seek counsel in the Word of God, it's going to hit you dead between the eyes. And it's going to say to you, if you continue to chase after this false God, it's going to heap up trouble in your life. If you continue to pursue the sinful relationship, it's going to bring death to your life. More than that, the Bible is like a mirror, isn't it? The mirror is there. It's intended for correction. 
You look in the mirror and you go, oh gosh, I didn't know that was hanging there all day. Thanks, friends. Like, thanks for not telling me about that one. Um, but you look in the mirror and you make adjustments. Some people think the mirror is there for admiration, right? They look at themselves and they're all, what's up? All you have to do is come here on a non-church day, right? You just go and watch the people work out. There's mirrors up, and you would think that the mirrors are there for, for guidance, they're there for correction, but instead, man, people put their headphones on, and they're in their own world where they think they are the greatest thing ever, right? They're sitting there working on them. I mean, there, there could be a hurricane, there could be an earthquake going on all around. They would have no idea because they have their little mirror for admiration. Listen, if we use the Bible as a mirror for admiration, we are now a legalist. As we look at ourselves and go, look at how good I am. Look at how good I do. The Bible isn't there as a mirror for these false gods. Now, when we hear that, um, we go, oh, phew. thankfully, we don't have false gods. Thankfully, we don't have idols. I would think most all of us here don't struggle with a little graven image in our living room that we burn incense to and we bow down to at night. I would imagine that's most of us. But understand that what the false gods of David's day represented are still very much false gods in our day, aren't they? Perhaps for you, I mean, I could think of 30 examples, but I won't. I'll only think of 29 for time's sake. It's a joke. You're allowed to laugh. It's all right. You go, I laugh when things are funny. <laughs> Got it. The first false god that many people pursue in our day is wealth. Wealth. Money, right? They, they, they sacrifice so many relationships for the sake of attaining just a little bit more what they call security, not realizing that it's its own prison. It was Charles Swindoll who said, there is nothing wrong with controlling money, but there's something very wrong when money controls you. I heard another pastor once say that money is a great servant, but it's a terrible master. You can do a lot of good stuff with money, lots of good things. But when it begins to control you, it is not a good master. But many people look at it and they go, as soon as I get a little bit more of money, then I'll be satisfied. Now your satisfaction must come from the Lord. Maybe it's not wealth, but perhaps for you it's idolizing people. People, whether it's an ungodly person that you're trying to mimic, you're trying to imitate your entire life around this ungodly individual, or I think in the church far more common is you think, well, as soon as I meet Mr. Right, as soon as I meet Miss Right, then, <laughs> then I'll be satisfied. Go talk to a married person, right? Um, and they'll give you great counsel on that. Um, as soon as I get that person to be my friend, then I'll be satisfied. Our satisfaction must come from the Lord, married or single. Or perhaps for you it's not people, it's not money. Perhaps for you it's recognition. As soon as the church finally recognizes how valuable I am, as soon as somebody comes up and finally pats me on the back and says, you are so important, then when everybody acknowledges how crucial I am to this equation, then I'll be satisfied. Believing these false gods to be your answer, I promise you will only heap up many problems in your life. 
I think of uh, Moses when, uh, you guys remember that story um, with the children of Israel there in the wilderness. Moses has just read the book of covenant to them. Um, it's three chapters in Exodus. He reads most of God's law to them. And how do the people respond? With a resounding yes. They say, we will follow God. They then read his word and then they make a sacrifice to God. When the sacrifice is done, what do they do? They then cry out again to God, giving him another word of praise. Then Moses escapes for 40 days up on Mount Sinai, and then he's gone. While he's gone for 40 days, the people look around and go, well, where's our leader? Where's God? Uh, Moses and God are up on, on Mount Sinai, so they turn to Aaron, and they say, Aaron, make us a golden calf. I wish Aaron would have just had a, a little bit of sense and would say, I don't know how to. <laughs> he, he would have figured out this whole thing. But instead, Aaron listens to the cry of the people, and he says, okay, fine, I will build you a golden calf. He builds them a golden calf, collects all of their gold, and then they bow down to this thing, and they say, this is the God who has delivered us from the hand of the Egyptians. What does Moses do when he comes down? Moses is irate. He grounds up that golden calf. He puts it in the drinking water, and he makes all of the people drink. Don't you love Moses? <laughs> How brutal of a leader Moses is. He doesn't come down and go, guys, you've fallen into sin. Let's turn to God and repent. He goes, okay, fine. That's your God. Then you drink your God. I mean, it's crazy. They drink this, this water mixed with gold, and it turns their stomachs bitter. Listen. If we pursue after these false gods in our life as satisfaction, if we say you are the source of my contentment, it will do nothing but produce bitterness in our life. Not only that, but we go on in verse 4, and he says that these people who are chasing after these false gods, listen to this phrase, he says, they hasten after another god. Hasten means to chase after, to barter for, it's a perfect way to describe it, and ultimately to obtain. These people who are pursuing their false gods, they're running and they're running hard. It was Spurgeon who said this, great quote from him, professed believers are often slow towards the true God, but sinners hasten after another God. He says, they run like madmen where we creep like snails. Their zeal rebuke our tardiness. Do we run after the true and living God as hard as the world runs after their false gods? I don't know about you, but when I came across that quote, I was extremely convicted. Because I look at people who have incredible drive. People who are willing to work 70, 80 hours a week just to lay a sacrifice down at the idol, um, at their personal idol. And I go, Lord, I couldn't give you 15 minutes today to be in your word? And these people are, are forming their entire life around the worship of their false god. All right, fifthly and finally, verse 5, this is where we conclude. It says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. I love David's response to these people who are, who are serving these little and false gods. He's basically saying false gods do nothing but add pain. They add sorrow. But the almighty God, he needs nothing added to him. That he is the source. He is the, the life of blessing. It all comes within him. Guys, in conclusion, if you're here and you have been relentlessly 
pursuing these false gods only to realize that they leave you empty and ultimately in a place of bitterness. Can I encourage you? Take, take a verse out of David's psalm and pursue after the Almighty God. If you're not a believer here, I would encourage you, come to know the Lord today. Acknowledge what David acknowledged, that you need to be saved. But for most of us, most of us in here are believers, if not all of us. If you are convicted because you've been chasing after these false gods, you've been bartering to, to obtain these false gods, can I encourage you to, to do what David did, to lay your soul totally open to Adonai, to lay your soul totally open and say, God, there is no part of my life that is off limits to you. And seek other believers, seek the pastors here that are on staff, and ask them to pray with you, and go to the Lord for help, because only the Lord can truly help. All right, with that being said, let's stand, let's pray, and I think we'll sing a final song before we go. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you died on the cross for our sins. We thank you that you are the blessing. Yes, we know you give blessings, but Lord, you are the blessing. Nothing needs to be added to you. I pray that all of us would be in a place where just to know you is enough. To have a relationship with you is the chief goal. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you that your name is lifted on high. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of the believers that are listening to my voice now that all of us could say what David said, that we could all say from the depth of our soul, you are our Adonai. You are our Lord, you are our governor, you are our decision maker. So Father, if there's anyone in here who was convicted by the reading and studying of your word, I pray that today they would make it right, that they would not allow this worship of false gods to continue any longer but that they would turn, that they would repent, and that they would come to you. That they would not experience the bitterness of soul, the death that that uh, life of sin will bring, but instead that they would find once again the freedom that comes in you. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you love us enough to guide us, to hold us in the midst of the storm. We pray now, God, that you would be with us and that you would be pleased that this song of praise would be a sweet-smelling aroma in your presence. That the words would be true, and that the heart in which we sing these words would also be pure. We love you, Lord. We thank you for who you are. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.